Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. I always hear people say the phrase, that doesn't happen here, whenever something horrible happens in their town. The sentiment tends to mean things haven't been this bad or the event is rare, but seldomly does it entirely ring true. But in the case I'm about to tell you about, the cliche statement of this doesn't happen fits perfectly. Today, I'll be telling you about the only unsolved murder case in the province of PEI, Canada. Now the question burning, now the question burning in the minds of the people of PEI is who killed Byron Carr. Get ready because things are about to get shady. <laughs> think of Prince Edward Island, images of Anne of Green Gables, red sands, and farming may be the first things that come to mind. But now, after hearing this, hopefully the name Byron Carr will also come to mind. Byron lived in the city of Charlottetown, the largest city center in the province, but it still has a really small town feel. Charlottetown is also considered a university town, and the University of Prince Edward Island brings a fair amount of the city's population. Today, the population of Charlottetown is around 40,000 people, and honestly, it is one of the safest places to live. PEI actually has the lowest crime rates of all provinces in Canada, so when a murder goes unsolved for decades, it is bound to make the residents of this safe province feel a bit uneasy. Byron Carr worked as a grade 12 English teacher, and by all accounts, his students loved him. Byron was close with his family, and he had a lot of friends, and overall, he was a happy man. Unfortunately, Byron lived in a time where being gay wasn't accepted in society, so he had to live a part of his life in secrecy. But this never stopped Byron from living his life to the fullest. He was a well-respected member of the community, and always worked hard to help out his students and make sure they really understood what was going on. One account from one of Byron's students claimed that their English grades went up by 20% because Byron made the class interesting and he truly cared about the success of his students. Byron lived in a home in town with his dog and a boarder. His house was very central in Charlottetown's downtown, making trips to the bars with his friends much easier. Another draw to the downtown area was the Queen's Square an area in downtown Charlottetown where gay men would cruise to find hookups back in the days before Grindr or Tinder. It was reported that anywhere from 10 to 15 men would frequent the square each night. Byron was always careful to only go to the square in the very late evenings. See, if anyone were to out Brian, that could cost him his career, family, friends, and Byron knew that he needed to be attentive to who was watching, and who he told about him being gay. Despite these pressures that I personally would find almost insurmountable, Byron lived a happy life. 
The Remembrance Day weekend in 1988 was fast approaching and Byron was prepared with lots of plans filling his long weekend. As he finished teaching his classes on Thursday, November 10th, Byron said goodbye to his students and co-workers and headed home, driving his 1987 white Ford Tempo. After going home and getting ready for the evening, Byron went out for dinner with his friends around 8pm. Byron got home from dinner around 9.30pm, and then he invited more friends over for coffee. While his friends were over, Byron received two phone calls from an unknown person. Byron's friends left his place around 11.45pm. After his friends left, Byron gets ready to go bar hopping, and by 12am he is out of the house and headed to his first bar. Byron arrives at Pat's Rose and Grey Bar and spends about half an hour hanging out there getting drinks and chatting with people. Around 12.30, Byron decided it was time to move on to the next bar, so he headed out to a place called Bud's Bar. He spends around half an hour at this bar before he moved on to his final bar of the night, Gentleman Jim's. Byron met with two friends at this bar, and the three of them stayed there until about 2am. Once the three leave the bar, they all head back to Byron's for a nightcap. Byron's two friends leave his home around 2.45am, and everyone says they plan on settling in and heading to bed. However, this was not Byron's true plan. Byron drove about three minutes to pick up his friend who was walking on the corner of Houston and University Avenue, and drops them off at the boarding house on 177 Sydney Street, about two minutes away from where he picked his friend up. Around 3.05am, Byron is seen parked between Prince and Richmond Streets, and the person notices that Byron is talking to a man on a bike. Following this conversation, Byron headed north up Prince Street towards his home, and the biker followed behind him. Saturday, November 12th, Byron's family was holding a family gathering to celebrate the long weekend. Byron's family anxiously awaited his arrival. The event started around 10am and Byron is always pretty punctual, so when 10.15 rolled around, his family were a bit confused. But maybe he got the time wrong, maybe he was running behind, but those excuses began to fade away as the time reached 10.45. The family was a bit concerned. He was never a no-show for family events. So a couple of family members decided they should go check on Byron and see if he was okay. When they arrived at his place, they noticed that his back door leading to his kitchen was slightly ajar. This seemed weird to them, so they decided they should just walk in. When they entered, they noticed that Byron's dog was in his kennel. His dog was put in the kennel while Byron slept, so they figured he was just asleep and they decided they should go wake him up. They walked over to Byron's room, but when they walked in, they witnessed something that they could never unsee. When Byron's family walked into his bedroom, they found Byron laying on the floor unresponsive. The family called the police, who made their way over quickly. When police arrived, they saw Byron laying on the floor of his room. He had been choked to death with a towel and stabbed in the abdomen with a knife. The police took to investigating this scene quickly and found a few notable things. On Byron's wall, the killer had written, I will kill again, in large letters written with what looks like a pencil. 
Also at the scene, police found a pair of socks discarded in Byron's kitchen garbage. Also nearby, police found a pair of bikini-style Zeller's underwear. The police collected the evidence and left the scene to lay out everything they knew about the case. Investigators determined that Byron had consensual sex with a man the night prior, and that the man had killed him following their hookup. This piece of information would prove to be the case's undoing. When police came forward stating that Byron had sex with a man the night that he died, people turned away from the investigation. The gay community had long-standing trust issues with the police, which meant that between the general public hating gays and the gay community hating cops, the tips received were few and far between. With no evidence arising from the public, the investigation grew cold very quickly. To understand how the public felt about his death, his brother Scott and his mother were in line at the grocery store, and they heard someone talking about how Byron got what he deserved. So it is not an exaggeration to say that people didn't care to get this case solved at that time. A few tips did come through, though. Byron's neighbors, a couple of his friends, and the person boarding at his home all gave statements to the police which helped paint a bit of a picture of what happened. From Byron's friends he was with that night, the police were told about his outings at the bars, the coffee, and the other events of that day that involved them. The boarder at Brian's home said he returned home around 9am of November 11th when he got home, he noticed Byron's car was still in the driveway, and he went into the home. Byron's room door was shut, so the boarder assumed that he was still asleep. So he went in quietly, packed his things, and left for the long weekend. Later that morning, Byron had a few friends drive by, and they said they saw two unknown men behaving oddly outside of his home. That evening, Byron's neighbors reported that his dog was barking a lot, which was uncharacteristic of his dog. Based on these pieces of information, the police put together a bit of a timeline of what happened when Byron's friends left. They determined that at some point, Byron had met up with someone and was killed between the hours of 3 and 9 a.m. They figured that Byron probably didn't know this person before he had met them, although they admit that there was still a chance that they did know each other. The police then said that the assailant left before 9 a.m. when the roommate arrived. Later that day, the murderer returned with an accomplice, but the two likely noticed that Byron's friends were slowly passing the house or that they had been seen and they left. The two then returned to the home in the evening, causing Byron's dog to bark like the neighbors heard. When they returned, the two attempted to clear the scene of evidence. The police believed that one of them wore socks on their hands to avoid leaving fingerprints at the scene. The scene cleanup was carried out, but they couldn't find the underwear, a crucial piece of evidence. When they couldn't locate it, the two got angry. It was at this time that they took a long-handled kitchen knife and plunged it into Byron's abdomen. This was long after Byron had been strangled to death and was not part of his cause of death. It was at this time that the police believe one of them left the message on the wall. The two then left out of the kitchen door, leaving it ajar as they left. And after this, police had received a phone call of a stolen vehicle in the area, and it is believed that the two of them might have taken this car to get away from the scene. 
Police took pieces out of the underwear and socks found at the scene and extracted any DNA found on them. The underwear DNA failed to match any person in the DNA databases. But the underwear actually had two different sets of DNA, one of a male and one of a female, and this led to police's theory that the man who had murdered Byron was actually bisexual. Oddly, the socks that were found at the scene didn't have DNA matching the underwear. It had DNA that wasn't otherwise found at the scene. Other than these pieces of information, police had nothing else to go off of. They really needed reports from citizens, but they were not receiving any and the case grew cold. In 1992, the case file of Byron's murder was shut because they believed nothing new was going to come of it. So that's where his case remained, ignored and shoved to the side. That is, until Deputy Chief Brad McConnell arrived on the scene. In 2007, McConnell reopened the murder case of Byron and took a long look at the evidence presented for the case. He knew he had to reach the public if he were to have any hope at cracking this now decades-old cold case. McConnell was banking on the public having a change of heart when it comes to their views of the queer community. When McConnell put out the call for information, he was not disappointed. First, he received a call saying that a man had observed Byron talking to a man described as a white man between 15 and 25 years old on a bike, and that this person later followed Byron back to his home. This hint finally gave investigators an idea of who may have murdered Byron. Then, in 2008, a man came to McConnell to say something huge. The man said that he personally knew the accomplice. The accomplice had actually told the man that he was involved in the case. McConnell was skeptical at first. I mean, how many times have I told you about people saying someone confessed something to them and it turning out to be a false statement? But when the man was given a polygraph, he passed. Unfortunately, the man said to be the accomplice had died just recently, and that's why this person came forward. He feared for his life while the accomplice was alive, but now he had the opportunity to tell the police what he knew. Another man came forward in 2012 saying a similar story. This man knew things about the crime that weren't public knowledge, and he had no associations with the previous confessor. This suspect looked more credible as an accomplice. Knowing who the accomplice was meant they could hopefully narrow down who killed Byron based on the people who the accomplice knew. But it turns out that this guy knew a whole lot of people and it really didn't narrow down the search much. One final piece of information came from another gay man in Charlottetown. Two months after the murder of Byron, he had been in Queens Square and picked up a man and took him home. After they had sex, the man got violent with the victim. He then threatened him with a knife and made the guy hand over his wallet. The man says he barely escaped with his life, but he managed to get away from the guy. This could be it. This could be the break in the case. So the police took him in for interviews, but over the years he had lost memories of what the man looked like. Investigators decided the best route was to put him through regression hypnosis to hopefully dredge up memories of the man. When they did this, the sketch artist was in the room and they were able to create a composite sketch of the man that they suspected killed Byron. 
The police sketch shows a man with angular features, small eyes, a nose with a wide bridge and small nostrils, large ears that were inward-facing with detached earlobes, and very shapely eyebrows. The investigators then proceeded to show the man pictures of suspects, but none elicited a response from the man. He wasn't able to remember. But what police had now was leaps and bounds beyond what they had in the beginning. Unfortunately, the DNA taken from the scene had degraded too far to be analyzed using updated DNA analytics, but the profile they already had was submitted to DNA databases in the USA and the UK in hopes to get a hit somewhere. Despite this DNA being released to many different locations, there have been no direct hits as far as police have released to the public. While I was researching for this episode, I happened upon something that I found a bit interesting. A serial killer has been arrested in Ontario. This man has lived throughout Atlantic Canada, but he was born in Summerside, PEI. Police profiles say that the killer likely lived in Charlottetown, so that didn't fit the profile. But then I kept reading, and I found out after he was released from prison in 1987, at the age of 20, he moved to Charlottetown, where he worked as a male escort. This man has some information that really has me drawing links between his murders and the mysterious death of Byron Carr. While there are no formal reports linking this man to Byron, I would like to tell you a bit about him. But that'll have to wait till next week. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shali Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode.